Well, we've been looking at difficult questions, theological questions this summer, and we've addressed issues related to the Bible. Uh, bibliology is the technical term. We've looked at theology proper, that's God, and today we're looking at uh, what we call anthropology, or that is man. This is a huge topic, uh, and all of these are, and there's been volumes written on various aspects under this larger umbrella. I know that. Uh, and so, uh, uh, for some, this is deep waters. For some of you in the room, it's like, yeah, I knew this stuff. So just bear with us as we go along. Uh, we will resume an in-depth Bible study starting in the fall, and we'll give you more details on that. But we're looking at the book of Philippians, which I'm excited about. Uh, it's a good book. Uh, it has much to say about contentment and joy. Uh, and I don't know about you, but contentment is a, is a difficult concept <laughs> to live out. I understand it, it's just difficult to live out. So we'll be addressing that. But if you would, turn to Genesis chapter 1 today. We're going back to Genesis. And we're looking at the culmination of God's creation and there's much we could say on this, but we're looking at Genesis 1, verse 26, as we look at man. I titled it Good, Bad, or Transgender, and I will explain why I named, labeled that, that as we get to it, um, and, and why this really is actually a, a hot topic. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, the heavenly host declaring this, uh, some would argue it's a support for the Trinity, um, but he's, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, etc. And verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. He didn't do that with animals. He didn't, and in fact, when he created other creatures, he said in their kind. He doesn't do that with human beings. He said it's after the image of God. And he said, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. I want to really look at two key questions this morning. One is, the distinction: is there a distinction between human beings and animals? And what are the implications of that? And the other part deals with gender that's laid out here, male and female, he created them. Because there's been a movement starting in the 1990s, mainly through feminist theology and kind of a a real leftist theology that argues that God is transgender. And so that's been superimposed upon humans. And so male or female, it doesn't matter. Uh, we're kind of this spiritual being like God. And so your sexual identity doesn't really play into it. <laughs> and so I, I want to look at that and also the implications of it. I know for some it's like, what? That's really an issue? It's a huge issue. And if you went to the Society of Biblical Literature, which is kind of a who's who conference every year, I mean, they have all workshops just on transgender or on a feminist view of the text. Uh, and it's, it's, it's rampant, and especially in, in religious studies in secular universities across this country, and creeping in into some so-called evangelical schools. So I, I want to deal with it, and we'll make it practical. We won't keep it out there, so we'll, we'll see that. So we look at this text, and it says, God said, let us make man in our image. And one of the first questions that's often raised by individuals who, who will undermine the text, and that's letter A in your notes. We've been looking at a, a question that would attack the authority of Scripture, our response, and how would we base it? 
And this, this argument is that shouldn't every organism have equal rights? You know, the, uh, the animal activists, right? And shouldn't they be afforded the same considerations as similar interests of human beings? And our response, based on what we just read, is only humans are created in the image of God, right? You can see there, uh, under the definition of key terms, there are two words that are used in the Old Testament here, that of dignity, which in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, it's the word icon, and you know what that means. Uh, and so it says, we are like an icon, where the quality of the being of worthy of esteem and respect, worthiness, so in other words, like. And then there's image, where a picture that's similar, and it also can mean icon, a resemblance. So what are we saying? The image of God means that humanity is like God and represents God. So we function accordingly. And that's clear in the text, because what is man commanded to do or allowed to do in, in this creation account, that in the two, these two verses? What do we see in verse 26? We have dominion. We have authority over, over all that God has created. Good, bad, or indifferent, we, we have authority over it, all right? And so this idea is the image of God. We are like God, and we represent God in the administration. And, and that's fine and dandy, Hophidus, but what does the image of God mean? What is exact? What are, you, what are you saying? So let me give you some points there in your notes. And again, there has been much written, much discussed here. Some would like to stress simply that we represent God, but we're not like him. Uh, certainly, we're, we're not saying that we are deity by any means. But how are we distinct, and what does that mean? The first of these points there in your notes, as we look at this being like and represented, is that we possess a moral capacity. Bobo does not possess a moral capacity, right? Elsie the cow does not possess a moral capacity. What does that mean? Let me give you the, the, the lay this out. First of all, there's an intellect. I'm not saying chimpanzees aren't smart. My parents owned a German shepherd and she was one smart little cookie, but there's a distinction, isn't there? Humanity has been given the ability to reason. Acts chapter two, uh, Peter gives this eloquent sermon and he says, you are to know these things, the text is clearly with certainty. You're to reason and understand, process, and know it with certainty. That's not going to happen with Bobo. Secondly, another example of moral capacity is that we have ability for language. We have the ability to communicate with God. Right? Your cat might think they communicate with God, but uh, no. Right? Or they might think they're God. I don't know. Uh, I love cats. They taste a lot like chicken. Um, third is creativity. I had, I had a female student once, so she was so mad that I had made a comment about cats. I was like, oh, well. Uh, anyway, I'm highly allergic to them, so maybe that's why. Creativity. Humanity has an innate desire and ability to create. Originality is absent in the animal kingdom. You're not going to have that. Uh, that's distinctive. And, and, and that is reflecting God, isn't it? Um, whether you're an, an artist or an engineer, uh, you're reflecting God and your creativity and your ability to, to, to um, think outside the box, etc. And then love is another 
God is love. Humanity has the ability to reflect that love. It's another way we as humans are distinct from the animal kingdom. We are not animals. We are like God, not our own kind. And the last of these, which is on the next page, is the freedom of the will. Humans are responsible moral agents granted with the ability to choose to worship or rebel. There's a box. I have it later in the notes, but you see that box, that quote? Uh, This is excellent. Bray states in the Tyndale Bulletin, if the image were gone, that is the image of God, man would not merely behave like an animal, but would actually be an animal and therefore hardly responsible for his behavior. The presence of the image is the presence of responsibility, which is once the glory and the tragedy of fallen Adam. You think about this, because we have been created with the moral capacity, we have the opportunity to choose to follow God or we, have a, we could rebel against God. That's not going to happen with an animal. That's one of the major distinctions. So when it says we've been created in the image of God, once well, we've got a moral capacity, which is huge. Here's second, <clears throat> as we look at this image of God, and that is humans possess an authority to rule as representatives over the earth. We saw that in verses 26. Uh, you see it in 28 of chapter 1 in Genesis. I'd like you to turn to Psalm 8. Look at Psalm 8. This is huge. We're going to start at verse 5. <clears throat> 5b, <laughs> actually. You grant, this is Psalm 8, you grant mankind honor and majesty. You allow them to rule over your creation. Note the pronouns. You have placed everything under their authority, including all the sheep, cattle, as well as the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that moves through the channels of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign majesty. Then, notice, by the way, how magnificent is your reputation throughout the earth. What is the one of the ways his reputation is brought through the earth? Through us as image bearers overseeing this globe. Right? Interesting, isn't it? He said this is one of the ways that we are distinct and what it means that we're creating the image of God. Now, let me give you another. This is where uh, theologians will uh, squabble. Humans, not animals, possess the honor of reflecting and representing his character. We're just alluded to that. And then I have a statement underneath because Martin Luther argued that we, we lost the image of God at the fall. And there are other theologians that argue that. I don't think so because post-fall we see something very interesting. And I mentioned in your notes, as fallen creatures, the image of God has been marred, defaced, distorted, corrupted, and diminished. There's no doubt about that, right? Um, however, the image of God has not been eradicated or completely destroyed. That is extremely significant statement. Turn to Genesis chapter 9. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where our theology, okay, it's up in the ivory tower at the moment, but now it's coming down to brass tacks. Genesis 9, 6. This is the Noahic covenant. After the flood, we got the rainbow. Remember that? Noah built an arky-arky out of gopher barky-barky, 
right? You know the song. <clears throat> Nine six says, whoever sheds human blood by other humans, must his blood be shed. For in God's image, God has made mankind. So in other words, yeah, it might be marred, but it's not nullified because capital punishment should be enforced on the grounds that human beings still bear the mark of the image of God. So that's how significant it is. And of course, you, you understand the ramifications, don't you? When it comes to issues of euthanasia, abortion, etc., the, the huge ramifications to capital punishment and what we do with that. So all of that spells out here as we look at this. Uh, and, and Genesis 9-6 is very significant to me because it's, we still bear the image, tainted as it might be from the fall. Um, it's still there. Now, that's not to say, and this goes to the last point, we are in the process of complete restoration, aren't we? We are, and I mentioned this, there's a progressive restoration and there's a complete restoration when Christ returns. Uh, turn to 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3. And we'll open this up for questions then that you might have. Second Corinthians 3, verse 18, Paul states, And we all, speaking of believers, with unveiled faces, reflecting the glory of the Lord. So there's that progressive restoration happening as believers are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So ultimately, that image of God is restored as we are in His presence for all eternity. So the image of God, um, what does that mean? I, I think it, it highlight, is highlighted here. The moral capacity, representing God, possessing the opportunity to reflect Him, and ultimately we'll see that complete restoration. Questions or comments on this? Ah, several hands. Yeah, Paul. Yeah, I But they weren't. Yeah. Yep, there, there is some similarity, but yet distinction. Uh, yeah, Micah? In, in Genesis 9? It could be stylistic. I'm not sure why it would do that. Uh, uh, that I'm not sure of. I do know this. Uh, it's going to be like a politician. I'm going to change the subject altogether. I'm not sure on that. N the Noahic covenant has not been nullified. We still see a rainbow. 
the Mosaic Covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. So that's, I would argue, the Noahic Covenant still stands. And I think it's why Paul says in Romans 13, the government not only has the right, but must bear the sword, which is referring to capital punishment, which is very interesting. Now that's a whole other discussion. But yes, Eugene. May we not say Neshema, the breath of God, gave man life in Genesis 2-7. May we not say that he gave him spiritual understanding Job 32.8. Hmm. May we not say that he gave him moral guidance in Proverbs 20.27. All of them use the same word, and some of them go back and forth, and that should be the inner part of man's image of God. There's no doubt about it. Yep, being like him and, and how that plays out. Nice job. Thank you, Eugene. Yes. We're brought into that equation, aren't we? Yep. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the ramifications for all of this, you know, so what? We'll get to that in a minute because that plays out in how we view human beings, right? The beggar on the street to the person with Down syndrome, the list goes on. They're still created in the image of God. Uh, whether they're 95 or 9. So we'll, we'll move to that, but I, I want to look at one other theological issue before we do deal with implications, and that's the second issue. And again, for some of you, this, like, uh, this is a no-brainer, but this is a hot topic, and it's becoming more and more prevalent. And I fear that as Christian leaders, many of you in this room, churches are going to have to address the transgender issue, sexual identity. It's becoming much more, I know, Micah, you're shaking your head. You're seeing that in your role, um, um, in your ministry. This, this comes straight. I, I'm lifting from uh, a lady who wrote an article. This is back in the, uh, was ten, 10 years ago now. She says, the image of God indicates our kinship with a bodiless creator. She states, this phrase has nothing to do with sex, gender, human differences, but a trans theology, a theology that does not need to force an individual to define his or her person. So she wants to eliminate gender and gender issues. And of course, (laughs) um, the response here is that the Lord has made male and female. And and someone just mentioned about community and person and unity. This is going to play out. It plays out in three areas. Bear with me, um, because this is huge. <clears throat> Number one, as we look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God's creation of two distinct persons as male and female, rather than just one man, even though they will form one flesh, reflects the plurality of persons within the Trinity. What am I saying? Unity and purity within marriage reflects God's character in the world. So, male and female are... And, and husband and wife, in particular, becoming one flesh is in an object lesson, if you would, of the Trinity, isn't it? The Trinity is three persons in one essence, ontologically the same. And, and, and we see that in God's created order. Paul will refer to this in 1 Corinthians, a text we'll look at in a minute uh, about this. 
and we'll see this play out. But secondly, both men and women have been created by God to be equal in importance and in personhood. In other words, females as well as males are created in the image of God. Uh, we need to espouse that, especially those who, who maybe come from a complementarian background. Men and women ontologically are the same. In essence, they're the same. There's no question that. However, Genesis 1 clearly indicates that they are two distinct persons, males and females. They're distinct in function. And this distinction and roles between men and women were established when God created men and women. In other words, it wasn't the fall that created this mess, so-called mess. It's not a mess. Uh, and and b- basis of that, in your notes, I said Adam was created first. Eve was Adam's helper. Adam named Eve, which is very significant. Satan spoke to Eve first, whereas God, when he found them, spoke to Adam first. And Eve, uh, not Adam, or excuse me, Adam, not Eve, represents the human race. Turn to 1 Corinthians. Hold on, we'll open it for questions. This is, let me give you one text, 1 Corinthians 11. I have jokingly stated, somewhat jokingly, that 1 Corinthians should be called 1st United States um, because many of the issues this church is plagued with were plagued with in our culture. <coughs> one of those is the issue about women and their role within the church. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, says, I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. The term there, by the way, is not of source, but of authority. It never, ever, in Koine Greek, means source, as some would like to argue. And that man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. I mean, if it's source, then we got a problem, because that means Christ is the offspring of God. That will not work. I realize Eve was created from Adam, but that's not what this term is indicating. In other words, there's a hierarchy in function. Remember, Christ and God are distinct in person. Christ submits to the Father, but ontologically they're the same, aren't they? They're part of the Godhead. The same as uh, uh, the marriage is, is a microcosm of that with a husband and a wife, the male and female. And God has made it very clear when he created this globe and created order there is to be male and female. <laughs> That's what he intended. And contrary to the lady who wrote that this is a trans theology, that's, that's far from what the image of God is indicating. And in fact, the image of God as it plays out in male and female relationships is actually a beautiful picture of who he is. Uh, he's one that is distinct in person, yet unified as one. And that's what we see in marriage with male and female. Uh, what is it you want to, to highlight, Eugene? Well, the same thing we've been talking about. Go ahead. Yeah. And we all who with unveiled face contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Right, and that's what I quoted earlier. But I, I, yeah, that's all right. So what we see are these, these issues being played out in distinction between male and female. Let me give you some implications, and then feel free to chime in. 
First of all, I think this is obvious, but created in the image of God extends to all people, doesn't it? <clears throat> Remember James in our study of James? Look at chapter 3, verse 9. James 3, 9. Sorry to have the Bible drill today, uh, flipping in all these texts, but James 3, 9 says, With it we bless the Lord. He's talking about how our tongue engages other individuals. And he says that with it we curse people, what? Made in what? God's image. Interesting, isn't it? This image of God extends to all people. Yes, even the most vile. They're still created in the image of God. <laughs> it may be quite tarnished, but, uh, and this is something we've engaged our kids because, you know, our daughter, uh, she had some drama surprise, surprise, at school, and she had some choice words, harsh words, I should say, uh, with some of these so-called friends, and I said, careful, they're creating the image of God. You know, uh, we need to be praying for them, uh, you know, etc. Secondly, I think we all know that one. Secondly, creating the image of God places value on human life. I said, while the entirety of creation is magnificent and remarkable, it is man alone that is the culmination of God's creative work. That's very significant, isn't it? We're the culmination of creation, and we're the only ones that have the, the opportunity. Wayne Grudem writes, that's in that box there, if we ever deny our unique status in creation as God's only image bearers, we will soon begin to depreciate the value of human life. We'll tend to see humans as merely a higher form of animal, and watch this, and we'll begin to treat others as such. We will lose much of our sense of meaning in life. And all of a sudden, euthanasia becomes popular, abortion becomes a, a convenient way to maintain our lifestyle, etc., etc., Right? You know, it's interesting when John the Baptist was leaping in his mother's womb at the presence of Jesus, and Jesus, had, Mary had just conceived uh, Jesus, the Greek term is the same term used of born children. It makes, the, the New Testament makes no distinction between a fetus and a nine year old child. They're the same. Why? Because we've been created in the image of God. And God has knit and wombed us, in, in the womb, he's knitted us and made us great. And, and Genesis 9 is the Noahic covenant, which is the text we looked at. Questions on this or comments? This is huge. The ramifications, all right? Uh, are you prolonging life, prolonging death when someone's laying on their deathbed? All of these issues you've got to wrestle with and think through. Yeah. This is where it does not come. Uh, sin has really messed things up, <laughs> hasn't it? We live in a world that's tainted with sin and it's affected all areas and that's one of the issues. Uh, and I think that's when you're gonna have to struggle with the, the medical team that you've got before you. And the Lord, I, I can't answer that. I don't know if anyone wants to engage that. And... <sighs> Micah, yes, you've looked at this topic. You, you've addressed this, and I know in your ministry, correct? 
we uh This, this plays out in a whole host of ramifications. And it's one of the issues you have to wrestle with the Lord on. Let me give you another. Let's take this to, to males and females. The Trinity displays the importance of unity, yet distinction in person. I think we all agree there. This standard becomes the basis for the relationship between men and women in God's created order. Right? <clears throat> yes, we are ahead of our wives in the home, but we're to love our wives as Christ loves the church. Uh, I've heard it say, and it's, it's right, the only argument a man and a woman should have, a married couple should have, is who's going to serve each other first. Amen. Right? Uh, if we're truly loving our wives as Christ loves the church, the issues of submission, are, I think, are a moot point. Because we, we're loving our wife, encouraging our wife. But also, the ramifications of this is huge. To have an affair, the failure to love our wives dilutes God's powerful object lesson that he has for this world. And I know some of you are struggling in marriage right now. You've shared that, some of it. Uh, and I'm not, I don't want to be sensitive to that. But God does take marriage very seriously, doesn't he? And um, thank goodness for forgiveness. Thank goodness for... Uh, our spouses who love us even when we blow it but um it's a powerful object lesson and god takes his object lesson seriously just ask moses when he struck the rock more than once uh very significant ramifications for moses and and so and again this is god's created order this is not the fall that's what egalitarians want to argue egalitarians argue that there's no distinction between men and women in function well and they'll go to the fall no, it, it's pre-fall. And that's interesting, by the way, because that fits with this next point. The blurring of genders is an outright rejection of male and female roles, and it's an affront, I will argue, to the Creator. Sexuality and gender are not products of the fall, but God's sovereign plan through His created order. When Paul argues that homosexuality is wrong in Romans 1... If he didn't, he, he, he goes to creation to argue his case. If he hadn't done that, I'd say, oh, maybe it's a cultural issue and it's okay today. But he goes to the created order. He does the same thing with ro the role of men and women in marriage. He goes to the created order. Look at, go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Just look at this. Don't take my word for it. <clears throat> when I taught New Testament survey... Probably to over 5,000 kids, the role of women was the, probably the most controversial issue we would address, believe it or not. Maybe eschatology was a close second. Um, but role of women was a hotbed. And we read 11.3, but skip down to 8 and 9. It says, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for man. Other words, it goes back to God's created order. In the whole context of being created in the image of God, right? 
So the ramifications of this theological truth, the image of God, plays out in so many realms. It plays out in our relationship to our wives. It plays out in how we're going to care for an elderly parent, right? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Questions or comments? <laughs> uh, yeah, Paul. Can we have morality before the fall? And I would argue yes, because Eve and Adam both made moral choices before the fall. That's what led to the fall. That's the, maybe, I don't know, chicken before the egg. Yeah, two more and then we'll end. Yeah, Kyle. Well, this is a deep topic. And, uh, and, and Micah, I'm going to put Micah Clark on, on, Micah, can you just in uh, one minute, tell us your ministry and, and how we can get engaged. I know that's horrible. One, one minute, but. Yeah, if you would like to know more about how you can team up with Mike and see him because uh, he's on the forefront on a lot of these issues. Yeah, Dick. It is, Romans 13. Paul says the government has the right to bear the sword and should, and bearing the sword is not uh, defense. <laughs> that is... It, that's a reference to beheading, capital punishment. So, and I would argue the Noahic covenant has not been nullified or um, fulfilled in Christ. I think it's ongoing, and I think the rainbow is evidence of that. So I would argue, no, it still holds. <sighs> you know, how we play that out is a whole other discussion as well, isn't it? I'm hoping what we're accomplishing this summer is to have you ask more questions, not give all answers, but to drive you to the text and to drive you to think through a little bit more theologically why we do what we do. Um, last, I'll wrap it up. I know I'm going over. Last Sunday at our Sunday school class, uh, our pastor of missions came in as a Muslim and tried to convert the class to Islam for an hour. And he attacked the Trinity. He attacked uh, our scriptures and to be quite honest, I was mortified in some of the responses in the class. Don't tell them I said this. But some of the responses were so weak. And I thought, we have not thought theologically uh, or taught our people to think theologically. And that's what I hope we're accomplishing through this. I know this is heady stuff. And so you keep it up. And for some of you, this is old hat. You know this inside and out. So uh, thank you for letting us learn alongside you this morning. Well, can I close for us, Tom? Please. All right, let's close. Father, Lord, thank you that we have the amazing privilege of reflecting your glory. 
to be brought uh, to be brought into existence as image bearers of you is enormous a tall order and lord uh, that plays out in in how as james said how we interact with one another and as paul has highlighted how we interact with our spouses if we're married and in and, and how we interact in gender issues um, lord give us wisdom thank you for people like micah who are on the forefront of trying to raise a moral flag in a culture that is becoming more and more antagonistic to you and your wisdom and how you have created this planet Lord, it shouldn't surprise us uh, because as we see in Revelation, we're going to need a new heaven and a new earth. <laughs> but until then, may we be good image bearers as we exalt your name. Lord, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.